0: Greetings. My name is Dave and I serve as the senior pastor here at Redeemer Church of Dubai, and we're glad that you're here this morning. I want to mention a few things to you before we dive into our text today. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, we read that because we have a great high priest, Jesus, who died for us, we can live out verse 16 of that chapter. We can live out what, what it says when it says, Let us then... In light of Christ's priestly work for us, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. Now, because of what Jesus has done for us in the cross and dying on the cross for our sins, we are able as Christians to be people of prayer. We have access to God. Christ is our advocate and our priest, and this is no small thing. This is a wondrous and amazing truth. This is why we give so much time in our corporate gathering to corporate prayer together. We have a prayer of adoration at the beginning of our service where we praise God for who he is. And then we move on to a time of confessing our sins and our prayer of confession. And then we have a prayer of petition where we come together as a body for the needs of this body in the world. Our corporate gatherings are marked by prayer. But there are a few other ways that we as elders want our church to be in prayer in the coming months. Let me just mention a few of them. First, we're going to stop in our community groups this week, and we're going to just pray. We're going to stop our normal Bible study, and together in our groups, we're going to pray to God. We're going to ask for God to work in our lives, in our city, in our church, in our country. And then on Friday evening, June 5th, we're all throughout this country as a church. We're going to gather together together to pray in seven or eight different locations in Sharjah, Barsha, Jumeirah, Sheikh Zayed Road, Garhud, Twar, and Murdiff. There'll be elder-led prayer in all of those places. As a church body, we're going to come together, spread out, and ask God to move in this place, because we know that if God's not moving here, then nothing will be done. And then all summer long, we're going to be People of prayer on Friday mornings. Normally what we've done during the 9 a.m. hour is we've had an an inductive Bible study. We've had one class, a Bible study. Well, this summer from June through August, we're going to use that hour to pray together. So come early, come at 9 a.m., three months, June through August, and we're going to pray. We're going to gather together and ask God to do a work beyond our ability, beyond our talents, and beyond our gifting. And we also want to encourage you to initiate prayer with one another. Now, one of the downsides to doing prayer events is that it could intentionally or unintentionally, I should say, communicate that there's something special about these meetings that doesn't happen when Christians just on their own gather together to pray. And we encourage you to get together with another believer or a small group to pray. And the summer is a great time to do that. Some of you will have shorter hours for work during Ramadan. There'll be less church activities. So just grab another brother in Christ or sister in Christ or small group and just pray regularly. And one last thing, uh, you can pray for me. Uh, a week from Saturday, my friend Jim Burgess, the pastor of Fellowship of the Emirates, asked me to lead a gospel charge for the basis of our prayers at a prayer gathering that he's leading. There'll be some from other churches there, and while it's not an event that Redeemer's organizing or an event that we're leading, you're certainly welcome to come, 7 p.m., the Gloria Hotel next Saturday. But please pray for me as I preach the gospel to any number of people. Pray that their lives would be changed, that they would come to an understanding of what God has done for them. Redeemer Church, let's be a people of prayer. Let's be a people of prayer who prays for all kinds of needs for all kinds of people. Let us be marked by a dependence on God. Well, friends, if you haven't already turned there, you see that we're studying 1 Timothy. So you can turn towards the end of your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. The Apostle Paul has been writing a letter to Timothy, the pastor at the church in Ephesus. The question he's been answering all throughout the book is, what is a healthy church? In chapter 1, we saw that healthy churches protect the right doctrine of the church, and they guard it from false teachers. In chapter 2, healthy churches worship God appropriately and pray for all kinds of people. In chapter 3, healthy churches are led by godly leaders. Chapter 4... Healthy churches are filled with Christians who strive for holiness and watch their lives and doctrine closely. And now in chapter 5, we see that healthy churches treat one another in the church like a loving family. If you're taking notes, that's the one main point today. I'll say it again. Healthy churches treat one another in the church like a loving family. We're a family. The Apostle Paul's giving instruction to Pastor Timothy, but again, verse 7 in our passage shows us this is a word for all of us. This whole letter was meant to be read to the church in Ephesus, and then in verse 7, Paul says, Pastor Timothy, command these things as well, so that they may be without a reproach. This is a word through Timothy to the whole church. It tells us about our life together as a family. And Paul mentions four things about the church's family life. That'll be our outline this morning. Under that main point, four things. And the first thing we see in our passage is that the church should watch out for pride. We should watch out for pride. Verse one. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers. Well, the idea of rebuke here is actually to sharply rebuke or to strike. It has a note of severity. Paul's not telling Timothy or anyone else never to rebuke someone who is older in age. No, Pastor Timothy, would, as a pastor, would have to rebuke those younger and those older in age. But he's telling Timothy to appeal to those older with respect, with a reverence. That could be tempting for Timothy or any church leader to act in pride. One way to demonstrate pride would be to rebuke an older man harshly. Elders are to be examples of humility, but unfortunately, we've all seen power-hungry leaders, haven't we? We've seen pastors who are prideful. Maybe you've seen me act in pride. Certainly a temptation of mine. Many pastors are tempted with this, and perhaps all Christians struggle with pride to some degree. A pastor must not abuse his authority. His leadership can't go to his head. There should be a discomfort in rebuking an older man like you're rebuking your father. Naturally, this is awkward. There will be tears and brokenness. When we treat younger men as brothers, as equals... You're not better than those younger than you. Treat them as peers, not in pride. We don't lord over those younger than us either. In reverence to those older, in love and equality to those younger. And we treat older women as we would our mother. With love, with thankfulness. Elders lead the church in humility. Elders don't go on power trips. They don't abuse authority. I once heard it put like this, that a pastor going on a power trip is like the donkey that carried Jesus into Jerusalem going on a power trip. I mean, just imagine for a minute that little donkey as he rode on into the holy city. You know, the disciples, they start walking into the city and everyone starts cheering. The donkey sees everyone and he kind of perks up. He hears hip, hip, hooray and hosanna. The crowd's going crazy. Everyone is cheering. And so the donkey says, hey, hey, thanks, guys. I'm flattered. Really, I am. You don't have to. Palm branches? Wow. Okay, go ahead. I am pretty great. And then he takes a bow. He's got a little more bounce to his step. But then the guy, a guy from the crowd comes up to the donkey, taps him on the back and says, hey, quit strutting, you silly donkey. It's not you they're cheering for. You're still the same dingy, smelly, dirty, gray donkey you were a few minutes ago. You're not that great. The person they're cheering for is the one who is riding on you. When a pastor gets a compliment, he has to remember, don't strut, donkey. Now, you don't have to say that to me. I think I can remember on my own. (laughs) I hope I can. This is true of all of us, isn't it? doesn't matter if you're a church leader or not. We're all donkeys. You've heard it here at Redeemer Church of Dubai. We're all a bunch of donkeys. Now, any greatness we enjoy is because Jesus Christ is the king and he is with us. Right? It's all about Jesus. All the praise, all the honor, all the adoration. It's all about Jesus. In any sense of pride that we have, that we're great, must be confessed of. It must be repented of quickly. This is one of the reasons we have ten elders in this church. It's because I'm too prone to pride. It's because one man can't be trusted with all the leadership. That's why I need Tom and Frank and Nissen and Glenn and Philip and Jason and Mac and Brian and David. It's why we need each other. It's why we have 400 church members in this church. It's because even 10 elders aren't enough. That's why God has ordained the church members to share the load of ministry and decisions in the church as the final place of authority in the congregation. Oh friend, how is your pride today? How's your heart toward the people sitting in your row? Do you show honor to those older? Do you show honor to those younger? Or do you think you're better than those younger because you have gray hair on your head? Do you see your age as an opportunity to bully those younger? Do you think you're better because you're younger and you think you know it all? Friends, there should be no generational prejudice in God's church. When we approach each other in rebuke, we do so in love, having examined our own hearts, having seen the log in our own eyes. Then in gentleness and tenderness and care, we go point out the speck in another's eye. We do that to the honor and the glory and the praise of our God. We watch out for pride. Well, Secondly, we also watch out for purity. That's the second point in our text. Watch out for purity. Verse 2. We are to treat younger women as sisters in all purity. Grammatically, that phrase, in all purity, is intended to describe man's actions towards younger women. Starting with Timothy and then flowing down through all the men in the church. As a pastor and as an elder, I'm to lead the way in this. Paul gives a caution to Timothy, because when pastoring, a minister is often called to minister to younger women. You know, Paul's been clear about an elder's commitment to his wife throughout the whole book, so this is no surprise here. In chapter 3, we saw that if an elder is married, he is to be a one-woman man. In chapter 4, we saw that an elder is to be an example of purity. That same word is used in our text today. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 that all Christians are to flee immorality. Ephesians 3 says there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality among you. Well, Timothy was to treat women with the same protection he would give his sister. I mean, a godly man wouldn't even think of hurting his sister in this way. I mean, that would be despicable and sick. No, that same sickness, that same perversity should be the feeling we have when we even think of engaging in improper relationships with women in the church. I think Philip Ryken puts it well. He says, There is a real sense that Paul is saying adultery among Christians is tantamount to incest. Now that's shocking, but it's true. Pastors, men, treat women as sisters. Treat women in the church as you would your sister. There can't even be a suggestion of improper interest or intimacy. We are God's family chosen in Christ in eternity past, set apart for purity and priestly service unto him. Oh, friend, impurity, even a hint of immorality has no place among this family of God. This is why I personally don't meet one-on-one for discipleship with women. I won't do regular ongoing counseling with a woman. The elders won't meet alone with a woman for a membership chat. This is how incestuous affairs in the body of Christ begin. A man and a woman begin spending time together. They begin appreciating the fact that each other respects them. They admire one another. They start sharing secrets. They start letting that person into their heart. And slowly but surely it goes downhill. I got an email from one of my best friends this past week. He's a, he's my age. He's a professor at a, at a Christian seminary. And he wrote me in, with regards to how he's doing. And he said, you know, I think I've moved, unfortunately, beyond the stage of life where I've, where I see all my friends get married. And I've moved beyond the stage of life where I see all my friends have children. Unfortunately, I'm now in the stage of seeing my friends commit adultery. You know, it's a sad but true reality. Friends, how are you doing regarding purity? Purity doesn't happen by accident. We've been redeemed from the pit, but this world would love nothing more than to drag us back down. Everything in this world is bent on your destruction images, commercials, clicks on the computer. If you have no guardrails, you will drift off the cliff. If you're a single man, are you treating the women in this church like your sister? If you're a married man, are you treating every woman in this church who's not your wife like you would your sister? And sisters, are you treating the men in this church like you would a brother? Even though there may not be a biological link among us, we are united to one another through our elder brother, Jesus Christ. We have the same Father in heaven. We are indwelled by the same Holy Spirit because we are God's children. We gather around the same table when we take communion and we have plans to attend the longest family reunion in history in heaven. We are God's family. Let's treat each other like family. Let's fight for purity. Well, how can we seek purity at Redeemer? Well, let me mention six practical things we can do. Six things. One, watch your lips. Don't say improper things or share coarse jokes. Don't say things that are inappropriate to a member of the opposite sex. Don't share intimate details about your life to someone who's not your spouse. If you're married, don't confide in someone who isn't your spouse. Don't talk about your spouse and your marriage problems with someone of the opposite sex. If you're single, make sure your closest friends are of the same sex. Two, watch your fingers. Watch your fingers. Now, I love my sister But I don't sit around and text her or WhatsApp her all the time to find out what she's thinking or what she's doing or what she's feeling every moment of the day. It's so easy these days to hide behind true responsibility and to pursue someone's heart by using your fingers to type on your cell phone. Now save your personal texts for your spouse or a friend of the same sex. Be careful not to lead someone on of the opposite sex by messaging them often. Don't try to sneak into someone's heart through their iPhone. It's actually a cowardly thing to do. Because it gives someone the sense of intimacy without responsibility. Watch your lips, watch your fingers. Thirdly, watch your thoughts. Don't let your mind wander to impure thoughts. Mortify your sinful thoughts by thinking of the bloodied and bruised and beaten and crucified Son of God who endured such things to redeem you from sin. Four, watch your eyes. Train your eyes not to look at things you shouldn't look at. Don't watch movies you shouldn't watch. Don't look at pornography or any image that stirs up lustful emotions. These images don't just affect you for a few minutes, but for your whole life. In that moment of indulging your lust, a part of your conscience gets seared. It's like a nerve that goes numb and you open up your life to more wicked things. So watch your lips, watch your fingers, watch your thoughts, watch your eyes. And five, watch your circumstances. Don't put yourself in compromising situations. Don't make allowances for the flesh by being alone with someone from the opposite sex in a romantic situation. If your spouse lives in a different country, this doesn't give you the right to have a romantic relationship with someone else here. If you feel like talking to a member of the opposite sex, call your wife. Call your spouse. If you want to go on a date, go back home to your home country. Take your spouse on a date. Don't go outside the fireplace of your own marriage to find warmth somewhere else. And finally, six, just for the men, watch the reputations of your sisters. Watch out for your sisters. You know, every morning when I leave our flat to go to work, I... Ask my oldest son, Judson, the same very thing. I give him a little fist bump as I go out the door. And right there at the door, I say, Judson, what are you going to do today? And he always responds. And he says, Daddy, I will protect. What he means is he will protect his mama and his sisters from danger. See, what I'm trying to do is I want to train him every day that he is to protect the family. I want to train him up so that as he gets older and older that he will be a man who will treat women with respect. That he will protect. That he will watch the reputations of the sisters in the church. Oh, men of Redeemer Church of Dubai, I charge you today, protect the women in this church from dangerous men. And we should be charged, like my son, to be protectors of the church. God designed us to be protectors, not perpetrators. If we see any men on the prowl here, we stop them. We defend our sisters. We protect them from others, and we protect them from ourselves. Watch your pride. Watch your purity. Well, there's a third thing that Paul mentions in our text. Watch out for your parents. Third, watch out for your parents, verses 3 and 4. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. God is concerned about widows. And we'll get back to verse 3 in a minute. Churches are to honor widows, and we'll talk about that. But first... We need to see verse 4. Healthy churches are filled with members who are committed to caring for our individual parents and grandparents. In some cases, we'll need to work hard to care for our aging fathers. But specifically here in our text, Paul urges us to look out for our mothers. In particular, those who are widows. Who is supposed to take care of widows? Well, if they have children, God says it's the children who do it. So children who take care of their mothers and grandmothers, we are to make a return to our parents to contribute back to them what they've done for us. Now, this isn't some financial payment to pay back every last dirham for what your parents did for you, like it's some kind of karma bank that you're able to kind of match up what they did for you by what you do for them. That's not what it's saying here. But there is this idea that since your parents cared for you, now you as a grown-up child are to care for your parents. If your father has passed away, look after the needs of your mom. She took care of you. You Think about all those nappies she changed. Those were gross. She changed them. She nursed you. She cared for you. She raised you. Think of how patiently she loved you and cared for you all those years. Now, moms who are here today know that your mothering is a wonderful thing. Moms, be encouraged. Paul calls bringing up children in verse 10 a good work and a mark of a true widow. Your patience when your children sin against you is not in vain. The late nights nursing and feeding was not in vain. Holding them in your arms only to see them roll their eyes at you is not in vain. Each Bible story, prayer time, cooking, cleaning, leading, teaching, prayer. Mom, all of it, all of it was a a good work. It was honorable to God. What we normally think of as mundane is truly majestic in the eyes of God. What we might think of as thankless work is a tremendous work before our almighty God. And caring for widows in our family is one way to repay our parents back. We repay our dads and granddads for their leadership. We repay our mothers and grandmothers for raising us. But we don't do it out of pressure from our parents. We do it to bring pleasure to God. I had a conversation with a former church member about four years ago, and this person told me that they couldn't give financially to the church, that they couldn't save for their children's future. They had to send it all and give it all away uh, to their parents back home. And I asked this brother, whoa. Why can't you give to the church? Why can't you save any money? And this brother said, well, because my parents are building a second home back in our home country. Kind of a vacation home. And I stopped my brother right there and I said, brother, that's not okay. You're dishonoring God. His mom wasn't a widow. His parents actually had no financial need. They simply wanted another home and they guilted him into sending his money back home, telling him that he owed them for everything that they did for him in raising him. Oh, friends, this is not at all what Paul is saying here. We don't send remittances back home to earn favor from our parents. If we support our parents, it's as an act of worship to God to fulfill our God-given obligation to care for widows and to care for those in need. No, it is important to do. It's important that we do it for our parents because there's a sharp warning in verse 8. Look down a few verses later. Paul says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith. Paul says it's worse than an unbeliever. If you don't take care of your mama in need, you're worse than a pagan, Paul says. Why? Because even the pagans take care of mama. Even they know to stop and to care for that woman that raised them. Now that verse 8 is meant to shock us. It's a scathing indictment. It's a scathing judgment that is to come. If within your own family, you fail to help that widow. A few years ago, uh, there was a practice mentioned throughout the newspapers called granny dumping. I don't know if you heard about it, but it's that elderly and sometimes sick mothers and grandmothers were just left at the doors of hospitals and institutions. They're just left there to allow, hopefully, those medical institutions to assume care and financial help and emotional help for those grannies, for those elderly. Well, that's despicable in the eyes of God. The Apostle Paul is clear. True religion begins at home. Now, friend, you might not be granny dumping. Maybe it's a bit more subtle in your case. Maybe you have some contact. Maybe you have provided some care, but perhaps... Perhaps there's a lot more you can do. Oh, friend, real love has a real cost. Profession in Christ must must leave, lead to a practicing of your faith. Confession of faith must lead to fruit of faith. It's a practical atheism, Paul says, to turn away from helping a widow in your family. When we do this, we have no grounds to assure that we're even saved, that we're Christians. Oh, friend, maybe some of us need to repent today. Maybe you've neglected your mother. Maybe you've been bitter against your mother for something in the past. Maybe she wasn't always there for you. Maybe she wasn't the perfect mother. Friend, love her because of the gospel. The gospel says you were loved by God even while you were a sinner. God showed his love for you while you were unlovable. Take care of your mother. And this doesn't just apply to our parents. Paul says grandparents too. If you're in Jumpstart or Regeneration, call your grandma. Find out how she's doing. Write her a note. Send her a letter. Help her around the house when you visit her. Let her know you love her. Let her know you're thinking about her. Let her her know you're praying for her. As a family, make sure you're following God's commands. Well, here's a three-point checklist of questions to see how your family's doing. Three quick questions. One, are you praying for widows in your family? Two, are you providing for widows in your family? Are you praying for widows in your family? Are you providing for widows in your family? And three, are you protecting widows in your family? Husbands, wives, talk about these questions among one another. Are you praying, providing, and protecting the widows in your family? Watch out for pride, church. Watch out for purity, church. And watch out for your parents. One, finally, fourth and final point, watch out for widows in the church. Paul doesn't just stop at calling us to watch out for widows in our own biological family, but he tells us to watch out for widows in the church. As a member of this church, we have a responsibility to look out for widows in this covenant community. And Paul gives us instruction on how to do this. And I have four sub-points of instruction under this fourth point. So if you're taking notes, 4 subpoints. Under point four, first, the church helps widows in need who are widows indeed. Church helps widows in need who are widows indeed. Verses four, verse 16. It says we are to honor widows who are truly widows. Those who have no other help. Those who have no family who can take care of them. So when there's no family to care for a widow, who jumps in? We do. The church jumps in. The church takes on responsibility to provide and to support and to help that widow. Well, second, second subpoint the church helps widows who are godly. So, widows who have no family. Number two, widows who are godly. Verse five. The widow who gets help has her hope set on God and continues in prayer. Perhaps the best illustration of this is the widow Anna. She was a prophetess in Jerusalem, and Luke 2 talks about her. It says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Decades, this woman was in prayerful dedication to the Lord. Now, a widow may be without companionship of her husband, but she has the ever-present companion of her God. She has to pass time in fellowship with God like Anna did. The prayers of widows bring life to God's church. Now, if you're here and you're a widow, I know we have some in our midst. I know we have some in our membership. Sister, God is calling you to fellowship with him in prayer. Pursue a faithful ministry of prayer in the church. God is with you. Now, notice this isn't a command to send money to just any random widow. It's not a command to send money to some general fund for widows in Africa or in Asia or anywhere else. We take care of widows who are, one, financially qualified through destitution, and two, who are spiritually qualified through godliness. What we don't do is care for those widows who are living for their own pleasure rather than God. Paul says in verse 6 that such a woman is dead even while she lives. Now, that's quite an indictment. Some scholars think verse 6 means the widow is doing unethical things to earn money, perhaps stealing or prostitution. We don't know exactly what Paul is referring to, but his point is that the receiving widow should be godly in character. Give us a third subpoint and requirement for being a widow who receives a third. The church helps qualified widows, so widows who are truly widows, destitute, no family, widows who are godly. Now he gives us several more qualifications. So just under the the general header, the church helps qualified widows. Starting in verse nine, Paul mentions several other qualifications of a godly widow. Now there is some debate as to what the last verses of this chapter referred to. Some say that special duties in the church were reserved for a few of the older widows receiving aid, and they received official recognition of the role that was given them. That could be true, but I think it was more likely that Paul was continuing to outline the qualifications of those widows who would be eligible to get personal help from the church, and he was not indeed recognizing an official order of widows, And he gives several other qualifications there. One was seniority. He says they needed to be 60. Now, in this time in ancient Israel, 60 was the recognized age of retirement. It was the age when they believed someone became old. Now, during that time, life expectancy was much younger, and so 60 was old in that time. It meant that a lady was unlikely to remarry and was now dedicated to ministry as a single there seems to be some sort of pledge or vow to singleness for a true widow in Paul's day. Now, it's difficult as I study this and as others study this to know exactly what that pledge or what that promise or vow was. What it doesn't mean, though, is that a poor disabled widow who was 45 had to wait 15 years to receive any help. You know, it meant that women under that age could normally be expected to marry again or to go to work and support themselves. Now Paul asks that younger widows not be put on that list or receive regular help from the church. he doesn't want them to be regular, ongoing recipients of aid. Well verses eleven and twelve, Paul wisely states that younger widows would normally want to remarry, and in their desire to marry, the widows concern for marriage could take could be they could be tempted to take precedence over their commitment to Christ. Now, one scholar writes of these verses he says. These strong words seem to suggest Paul views widowhood as a spiritual commitment. He didn't want younger widows to accept the calling of widowhood and then renounce that call with the appearance of any eligible man. It was better to allow them to plan for remarriage as he directed in verse 14. Well, that idea of faith in verse 14, it appears to be used in the sense of that pledge or vow I mentioned. Apparently, some had broken their pledge, and Paul states and equates that that would be equivalent to them departing and leaving Christ. It was no small thing, and it is no small thing, to break a vow, to break a promise. But getting married is not a bad thing. You know, it might look like here we have a little contradiction between the Apostle Paul of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and the Apostle Paul here, right? We know in... First 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, man, it's, it's good to be single. Ladies, it's good to devote yourself to singleness. men. it's good to be single, to devote yourself fully to the Lord. But while Paul desired undivided attention to singles, he recognized that only some would have that gift of singleness. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says that this was just my feeling. It wasn't the, in, the intention for everyone to remain single. Now we see Adam and Eve, book of Genesis, that God was the creator of marriage, that God brought the first two together in marriage. Marriage is not a bad thing. Marriage, in fact, is a good thing. And one of the reasons Paul urged younger women, younger widows, to be remarried was to avoid the temptation towards sloth and gossip. A younger widow who was provided for financially, maybe had no job, had no husband, had no family, she would now have a lot of time on her her hands she would have a lot of time at her disposal. She would be tempted to be a busybody, giving into sin and actually not being dedicated to ministry. Now, getting married and having a family is a wonderful remedy for idleness, as verse 14 attests. Any mom can testify that having children will keep you anything than idle. I know mom after mom who can testify that they rarely have a chance to sit down during the day a very busy job. Now, raising a family is a busy thing, and raising a family is a good thing. It's a great thing. Well, another thing we see in the text, another general qualification, is that to receive aid, the widow was to be faithful to her husband. The husband that passed away, she was to be, have been faithful to him, to be a one-man woman. We talked about the elder qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, that an elder is to be a one-woman man. Well, here, a widow was to have been faithful to her husband that passed away. Well, to be registered as a widow, she must also be well-known for her good deeds. She brought up children. She cared for either her biological children, adopted children, orphans. She's shown hospitality by reaching out and loving strangers in need. She served humbly. She, she's cared for the afflicted. Even as one who's been afflicted, she herself was an advocate for those who are hurting, those in distress. She's a woman devoted to every good work. The church is to provide for these qualified widows. Let's move on to the fourth instruction, the fourth subpoint under the church's care for widows. If you're taking notes, the fourth. Um, actually, maybe move on to the fourth main point. Let's do that instead. Fourth main point the church is to be generous towards qualified widows. The church is to be generous to qualified widows. I wonder in your community groups this week when you studied this passage, I wonder as you read it, I wonder if you wondered why there were 14 verses on widows. Seems like a lot, doesn't it? In this book on being a healthy church, Paul stops and spends 14 verses telling us to love and to care for widows. He gives us instruction on how to do that. Why does Paul spend so much time on this? Well, it's because God is a defender for those who are helpless and weak. And there is no one more weak than a widow. At least an orphan normally grows in physical strength throughout their life, but a widow grows more and more weak. God has a special place in his heart for the hurting. Clearly, throughout Scripture, Psalm 68.5, God is a father of the fatherless and a protector of widows. Psalm 146.9, God upholds the widow. After giving the fifth commandment, God commands, do not take advantage of a widow in ancient Israel, when you, when you cut down the grain of your field, you left the corners untilled so that the widows could pick it up. In the book of Ruth, Boaz tells his men, don't gather all the food. Leave the remnants for the foreigners and for the orphans and for the widows. In First Kings 17, God spared the widow of Zarephath in the days of Elijah. He provided an abundance of oil for a widow through the service of Elisha. And of course, Jesus embodies this love for widows perfectly. He took special care for widows. He brought the widow of Nain, Nain's only son, back to life in Luke chapter 7. He commended the persistence of the praying widow and the generosity of the poor widow at the temple. Jesus rebuked those who devour the widow's homes in Mark chapter 12. And then just think of Jesus on the cross in John chapter 19. Jesus there laying on the cross facing the wrath of, of God facing the sins of the world, taking that upon himself as an atoning sacrifice. And in that moment, there on the cross, he looks out to the crowd and he sees mama. He sees his mother. And then he looks over there and he sees his beloved disciple John and he says, "Woman, this is your son now. And John, this is your mother now. Even in that moment of torment, Jesus had a heart for widows. Acts chapter 6 shows us that the early church took this seriously. They followed Jesus' example, and when the Grecian widows weren't properly cared for, they set apart seven godly and holy men, Stephen and Andrew and others, to make sure those widows were fed and cared for. No, God loves widows. God loves widows, and the church is to be generous towards those widows who are truly widows. Oh friend, how's your heart towards widows? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Well, the truth in this chapter leads us to several applications. Let me mention three in in closing. One, we should care for those hurting in this church. That should be a priority for us. We should care for those hurting. Are you loving the widows in this church? Now, in today's culture, we could probably expand the application of this passage to include a group of women mostly unknown in the first century, Christian women who've been abandoned by their spouses. Godly single mothers could also be seen as a new class of widow. Are you loving the single moms in this church? Are you loving those who've been abandoned in divorce? And what about orphans? And I was excited this week to get a text from my friend, Pastor Matthew Levant, the pastor of the Off-Island Evangelical Church in Abu Dhabi. And it's exciting because for the last two years, he and his family have been trying to adopt a couple of boys from Ethiopia. And after two years of heartbreak and trial and five trips to Addis, finally, in two weeks, their family can go and pick up two boys that they've been praying for and loving on from afar. It's a wonderful thing. Pray for them as they bring their boys into their home. Oh, friend, this love for the destitute, it should mark us. It might not mean adoption for you, but, friend, we should be on the lookout for those in need. The love for the hurting should be a mark of this church. Are we, as a church, loving one another as part of the body of Christ? One of the reasons we have church membership if you're a member of the church i encourage you to go to the connections table after the service and pick up one of one of our physical copies of our membership directory pray through that directory for one another consider each other's needs learn each other's names and learn each other's needs and let's together take care of them a second point of application we should learn from the widows in this church we should learn from the widows in this church Sit with them and learn. Enjoy their company. Listen to the story of their life and their spiritual journey. In our sinful flesh, we often try our best to spend time with those connections we think will bring us the most benefit personally or professionally. But the elderly in this congregation are not a burden, but a blessing to us. It's tragic when we have this backwards. I can attest that the times I've talked with Auntie Shantha in our church have been some of the most valuable minutes for me spiritually. Friends, do you sit and talk with widows? Do you even know any? Well, a third application. We should encourage widows. We should seek to encourage them. You know, as I was finishing my sermon yesterday, I was there at my computer, I couldn't believe that I hadn't done more to encourage Auntie Shantha lately, and I immediately sent her a note. You know, it's easy to get our priorities backwards, isn't it? Have you sent a note to a widow lately? Just a letter of encouragement, telling them you're thinking of them, praying for them, maybe an email, maybe, better yet, a, a written letter. Have you encouraged a widow with your service? given them a drive somewhere, changed a light bulb, fixed something in their home, brought them a meal? Have you brought a gift or sent some flowers for a widow? Maybe for their birthday, maybe for, for their anniversary of their marriage or the anniversary of their husband's death. Invite a widow over for dinner, adopt a widow during the Christmas holidays. And parents, involve your children in this. Visit a widow with them. Call a widow together. Pray for a widow together. And sisters, it may be that someday you are widowed. Are these godly character traits things you aspire to now? For every woman in this congregation, it would be helpful for you to look at this list. Are these characteristics of an approved widow things that you're aspiring to in your life right now? Would you qualify for this list one day? Are you a one woman man now? Are you you hospitable now? Are you nurturing children now, yours and others? Oh, sister, pray that you would. Pray that this would mark your life. Pray that by God's grace you would emulate the godly character of the enlisted widows we've looked at today. And friends, as a church, we need to remember what James 1 says to us. The religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, in their distress. That should mark us. But I want to end with the comment that there is one person more helpless than an older widow. All of us need to understand this before we leave today. That there is one person more helpless than an older widow, and that's a sinner. All of us will die one day physically, but the problem is that because we've all sinned, the wage of that sin is also spiritual death. It's an eternal punishment and death. And like a helpless widow, there's nothing we can do to help ourselves. Like Naomi with no hope apart from Ruth, we have no hope apart from God. All of us are spiritual widows apart from Jesus. But there is good news that in Jesus, God has provided a bridegroom for all of us. That Jesus Christ is a true bridegroom who came to earth and died on the cross in our place. That he bore the full wrath for our sin in his death. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, proving that he was indeed that bridegroom that he said he was. And friend, the way to be saved is to admit before God that you are far worse off than a widow. That you're without hope in this life and that you're without hope in the next life. That without his saving grace, you will be without his saving embrace. Oh friend, if you don't know Jesus, don't die alone. Being without the heavenly bridegroom is infinitely worse than being without an earthly bridegroom. Come to Jesus, turn from your sin, acknowledge your helpless state and embrace Jesus and you will be saved. You'll be saved for this life and the life to come. And friend, if you're here and you're a Christian, if you have been saved by grace, if you are walking with God, I want you to know, friend, you will never be a spiritual widow. You will never, ever, ever be alone. You will always have a bridegroom. He will always stand with you forever. You will never walk alone. You will never walk alone. Alone, apart from this bridegroom, he will be with you now and for eternity. And, oh, friend, this is something for us to celebrate, isn't it? This is something for us to rejoice in, that we will be with God forever and ever and ever. Well, on that note, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this immensely practical and immensely worshipful text today. Help our church to rightly embody your words, that we would be a culture of care, that we would be a family of faith, and that we would be a church that loves. Father, would we embrace and love and help and serve and pray for the hurting in our congregation? Would we not neglect those in our family? Would we not neglect those in our church? Would we be on the lookout for those destitute, to those without people in their life caring for them, and when we as a church support them and uphold them. And Father, with the truth that you're our bridegroom and that you will never leave us and forsake us, would that truth lead us to a radical love for those hurting in our midst? Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.